Kevin Mondro here, Coach Dro. Welcome back to the Tell Me Your Story Coach podcast, the podcast where we advocate coaches and help young coaches learn from the coaches telling these stories. Today, we are talking to Coach Rob Murphy. Coach Murphy is the current Assistant General Manager of the Detroit Pistons. As a matter of fact, Coach Murphy has now held four positions with the Detroit Pistons organization, President and General Manager of the Motor City Crews, Senior Director of Player Personnel for the Detroit Pistons, and now Assistant General Manager. And this has all transpired over a 400-day window. Before Coach Murphy's transition to the NBA, Coach Murphy was the head basketball coach at Eastern Michigan for 10 seasons. Coach Murphy is the second all-time winningest coach in school history. In addition, Coach Murphy was named the 2012 MAC Coach of the Year. In 2013, Coach Murphy led EMU to 20 wins. This was the first time this happened at EMU in 18 years. In 2014, Coach Murphy and his EMU team defeated the Michigan Wolverines. And in the year prior, he guided the program to a win versus Purdue. Coach Murphy was hired as the head coach at EMU in the spring of 2011 before becoming a MAC head coach. Coach Murphy spent seven seasons as an assistant coach for Coach Jim Beheim at Syracuse University. And before his time with the Qs, Coach Murphy assisted Coach Jim Christian at Kent State University for two seasons. However, it is in the city of Detroit where Coach Murphy started his coaching career. After an outstanding prep career in both football and basketball at Detroit Mumford High School in the Detroit PSL, and after graduating from Central State University, Coach Murphy would win two state championships at two different schools in the city of Detroit. The first state championship as an assistant coach for Coach Aronde Telefero at Detroit Central High School in 1998. This team featured NFL superstar Antonio Gates. And Coach Murphy won his second state championship, this time as a head coach at Detroit Crockett High School in 2001. This team featured former MSU Spartan and NBA player Maurice Ager. At Central State, Coach Murphy was a two-time captain under the guidance of former NBA player Coach Kevin Porter. Coach Murphy was recently inducted into the Central State Hall of Fame. In addition, Coach Murphy has a foundation that impacts so many youths in Detroit. The name of the foundation is the Rob Murphy Foundation. Finally, Coach Murphy is an author. Trust me, after the conclusion of this podcast, you'll want to grab a copy of the book Deep, The Life of Rob Murphy, Alive with Purpose. Please click on my show notes below to grab a copy of this amazing book. So many people know Coach Rob Murphy as Simply Murph, and I had the absolute pleasure to assist Coach Murph for 10 seasons at Eastern Michigan. Personally, I think that this conversation is amazing. I know that Murph is an incredible basketball coach. However, I truly believe that Coach Murph can flat out lead. And for 10 seasons, I had the chance to hear these amazing leadership techniques firsthand. I'm so excited that there is a platform where Coach Murph can share his leadership thoughts. And you can apply these leadership lessons to your team, your organization, or in your own daily life. Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform that you are currently listening. Remember, we are everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and so much more. Please keep telling your coaching friends about this podcast. The bigger audience we can create, the bigger impact we can make with younger coaches. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Instagram at Tell Me Your Story Coach. 
Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Twitter at Coach Kevin Dro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Mondro. By the way, if you need fall gear and uniforms for this upcoming season, check out my show notes below and connect with Moneyball Sportswear today. Enter the promo code DRO and gear up. And if you're looking for a great book to pre-order, please pre-order Rashad Phillips' book, Basketball Position Metric. Rashad breaks down how the evolution of basketball has called for updated terminology for player positions. See my show notes for how you can pre-order this new book by this incredible basketball mind. Enough of Coach Joe. Let's get to Coach Rob Murphy and share his story. Murph, why do you coach? Joe, I started coaching because of the love of the sport, the love of the game. I fell in love with the game of basketball in an early age. Playing career was over, and after graduating from college, it was an opportunity for me to remain a part of the sport that I fell in love with. As a young man growing up in Detroit, to be honest, uh, I didn't see myself as a coach until my high school coach, Venus Jordan, gave me some vision and direction. I remember talking to him during my senior year of high school about my future plans of attending college. He then told me to let the dream go of playing professional basketball. I wouldn't be a pro. He was very, very transparent and honest with me. But I could continue to be a part of the sport uh, if I majored in education. If I did that, he said he would save his his high school coaching job at Mumford for me once I graduated for me to come back and start getting back into the Detroit community teaching and coaching. He shared with me that he thought I was a great leader. I was a great communicator. uh, And he believed if I became a coach, that would be something I could excel at. So uh, I took his advice. I went to college and uh, the rest has been history. Right off the bat, you said honest. Think about 4,000 conversations at Eastern Michigan when we work together. Why are you so honest as a coach? I think being honest is most important. Being transparent is extremely important. To just be upfront with guys and, and always tell them the truth. Share your vision, but also share your vision within a realm that they can see themselves excelling. Uh, making sure that whatever they you know are coming to your program to do, the ins and outs of it, for them to be able to execute and be the best individuals they can be academically and athletically, uh, you have to be transparent and honest up front. And I always you know, had that with me as a, a high school player and a college player. But I think once I started coaching at Central High school, I just fell in love with the process of wanting to see guys grow. Uh, running into Antonio Gates and Dante Darling and Jimmy Twyman and Dwight Smith was such a blessing because they were young guys that were really eager to learn. Well, What I learned by coaching those guys uh, when they were young, they were just looking for direction and they were looking for the same vision that Coach Jordan was giving to me. Uh, and I was able to share that to start off my coaching career with those group of guys and, and I never looked back. But being honest, it's not really easy to do, is it? Being honest is tough. I think that's tough and and not just coaching, but in all situations, most people like to tell people what they want to hear and maybe in hopes that they would, you know, either build a relationship through it or some way, shape or form, try to get ahead. Uh, but me, you know, I learned at an early age just to be honest, be transparent. That's how you uh, you you earn your trust with people. And nothing or nobody was more uh, transparent with me than Venus Jordan was when I was in high school. And he taught me a whole lot by being transparent and honest with me at, a, at an early age. So in the last 13 or 14 months, you've had four different titles with the Detroit Pistons organization, president and GM of the Motor City Crews, senior director of player personnel of the Detroit Pistons, and now assistant GM of the Detroit Pistons. Murph, how does this happen? Drew, I don't even know how to answer that. 400 days and four titles is nothing short of amazing, to say the least. All those titles have come with my hometown team, so I'm excited that I'm in the position. I'm really living the American dream. The opportunity to become the president and general manager of the Motor City Crews was a blessing. I'm forever thankful for Troy and Aaron Tellum for believing that I can become president of the Motor City Crews franchise from both the business and basketball side. With that opportunity in the first 400 days, I learned a great deal about the business of basketball 
while building out the coaching side, uh, the strength staff, the medical and operations staff, and also a competitive basketball roster. Bringing uh, excitement into the community about the Motor City Crews was very important as well. Being from Detroit, I wanted to uh, reach out to our you know local businesses to make sure they got involved as partners. I wanted them to feel like they had some form of ownership within our franchise. Then there was the school part of it, and that goes well, you know, bodes well with the community as well, the education days, the mentorship programs. I used all my relationships throughout the Detroit and in the metro area to sell our, our floor seats and season tickets. I also approached our, our Piston organization. Uh, you know how I am, draw. I talk about the all-in concept. So I uh, approached our Piston organization about buying MCC tickets as well. Uh, so I got Troy Weaver on board, Aaron Tellum, and all our leaders within the organization on both sides of business and basketball, which bolded well for us because because the leaders in the organization bought in, the complete org chart of our organization bought in as well. So I think the biggest challenge in, in anything you do is always, you know, hiring great people. Hiring intelligent, disciplined, committed, and caring people is important. Uh, a leader is only as good as their staff, and I've said that over a career. But I hit a home run hiring LaRonda Burley uh, as the VP uh, and DJ Baker as our head coach. They were two uh, really, really good leaders in our inaugural season. Um, they had all the traits that I just mentioned. We all hit the ground running together and filling out our staffs together. So eight months later, we had exceeded all our revenue goals uh, by a large amount. We raised a great deal of money. We were great on the court, you know, getting to the Las Vegas Showcase Cup and also the G League playoffs. And when we did that, the most important thing was growing our young players. We did all of that in year one. We laid a great foundation and everything is set for future success. So those four titles in 400 days was a, a, an incredible experience. And in the midst of, you know, all that was going on with the Motor City Crews, there were a lot of front office changes. So after five months, I was very fortunate to be in position to be promoted to director of player personnel while still having the responsibilities of the president and general manager of the G League. Becoming director of player personnel, my main responsibility was to prepare us for the NBA draft. I felt we we hit a grand slam. Uh, Troy picked two great guys that uh, helped move the needle in our organization. And then eight months later, uh, after being senior director of player personnel, I was promoted to assistant GM. So I've been very fortunate to hold uh, four titles in 400 days. It's been a great experience in all aspects of the franchise. I had great support coming in the door, and I'm very appreciative of the opportunity that has been given and awarded to me. Do you miss coaching, though, getting on the floor, being with the players? I know it's a new role, but I mean, you're a coach at heart. Are you still coaching? You know, Drew, I think at this point in my career, I've hung up the whistle. I do miss coaching on game days. I think I'm in a, you know, perfect position to continue to build relationships with the coaching staff and the rosters on both players being the, the Pistons and the Motor City crews. So I get my fix by being in practice and talking to coaches each and every day and, and continuing to talk to players when the time fits. I do miss coaching on game day, but I don't miss it any other time other than that. Just the love of the game has kept me going in these uh, new positions, and um, I'm continuing to learn a lot as well. So I've kept myself pretty busy, and, and, you know, the stakes are really high at this level. So that has kind of taken my uh, my mind away from coaching as well. And, and when you're working with great front office people and you continue to learn the different nuances of the game and, uh, and continue to go through the, the evaluation process, the intel gathering process, you continue to learn about, you know, the salary cap, you know, what's a good trade versus a bad trade, what's a good contract 
contract versus a bad contract, understanding the timeline and of your roster and players and, and how long they'll uh, be with you and when it's time to uh, to let them go or continue to keep them as a part of your maturation. I'm just learning so much, so I don't really have time to miss it. But when that game day comes, I do miss competing on the sidelines. So on August 1st, The Athletic wrote this incredible article about you. James Edwards was the author. You combine that with your book, Deep, The Life of Rob Murphy, Alive with Purpose. It's just great descriptions of you personally and professionally. Just this morning, I was glancing at chapter one of Deep. Honestly, Murph, how are you alive? You know, Drew, I always, you know, say by the grace of God, it was so many times uh, throughout my life that things can be a lot different. And I know plenty of people, whether it be in my family or close friends that either they're not here today or they're spending time somewhere else simply because they made a, a wrong versus a right decision. And um, maybe, you know, God just had a, a plan for me because every time I look in the mirror, it feels like I'm living a, living a dream. For everything to come full circle to this point in my career, uh, for me to be an assistant general manager for the Detroit Pistons, the team that I, I grew up watching and rooting for and, and actually, you know, growing the love uh, through the relationships of, of front office execs when I did get into coaching, obviously in high school, watching the bad boys, uh, you know, win championships and, and the parades uh, going up and down Woodward and, and, and really, you know, everybody outside enjoying the celebration of winning the championship. And Joe Dumars was a huge part of that. And, and Scott Perry is, is one of my mentors. Um, so for them be, to be in the front office uh, with the going to work team and I was able to get behind the scenes and, and really follow them, whether it was coming to training camp, uh, sitting in practices, continuing to come to playoff games and continue to just root for the hometown team. I was learning a lot at that time as well. So now uh, for me to go through the coaching ranks from high school to, you know, mid-major colleges to uh, the highest level at Syracuse of college basketball and being around USA basketball and then to come back and be a head coach in my own state 30 minutes away from Detroit and for it to come full circle uh, is nothing short of amazing. So I thank God each and every day that I'm in this position. But more importantly, over the last 40 plus years, uh, just continuing to uh, to be thankful for each and every step, Be uh, continue to be thankful for each and every opportunity, never lose sight of what's most important. And for me, Drew, that's, you know, has always uh, been my family. Nothing more important than my two kids, uh, Ryan and RJ, uh, and I'm living and, and working for them. If everything was to stop for me, I've done more than enough and I feel completely satisfied, but nothing in the world motivates me more than to, to seeing them continue to grow uh, and them continue to be extremely happy in their lives, uh, growing academically and continuing to excel athletically. It's the only place that, you know, for me has no stipulations on love. Everything is just genuine. doesn't matter what I do or what position I hold. My kids, uh, you know, truly love me. So that's what I'm living for. Uh, that's what I've been about. Uh, continuing to help them grow and continuing to help uh, each and every person that I can excel. So the first two chapters are pretty deep in about some of the things that you encountered in your life and specifically situations with drugs and so forth. Is that the reason why, Murph, you've never drank or you've never smoked? This can't be true. Yeah, no, it's true, Dro. I never uh, drank and I've never had any form of smoke within my body. You know, people uh, tell me daily and weekly, like, wow, you still look the same or you still look like you did in high school when I run into different people. And a lot of that is accredited to not drinking and not smoking. But I exercise and, and, and continue to eat healthy and, and keep myself in great shape. But yeah, no, it's true, Dro. I just, uh, you know, I've never had an experience of, of drinking anything, but I think I saw it enough at an early age 
age to wonder why and where I come from, it wasn't any casual drinking. People who drank to get drunk. So once you got drunk, you were belligerent. You couldn't walk. You're throwing up. It was always a negative sighting. So I always said to myself, why would I want to drink? to put myself in position to look like that or feel that way. So I've always been a pretty much happy person. I always kind of looked at the glass half full. And for me, I just wanted to be the life of the party, but with no alcohol or anything to smoke. So I just continued to stay away from it. You know, it was always peer pressure in high school and in college and into your adulthood. But me, I'm a really strong-minded person. I've always remained disciplined. And when it's something that I believe in wholeheartedly, not a lot of times that I'll even be in, let's long break. So so that was one of those uh, non-negotiable areas, and it was something I said that I would would never do. And I think I'm I'm extreme with it, uh, to be honest. Through all the celebrations in my life, whether it was a birthday, uh, getting married, or having a child, in those different situations, I was always encouraged to you know have a glass of wine to celebrate, or have a beer, or have. But I just never had the urge, and and, and wanted to keep and continue this streak going throughout my life of never having any alcohol or never having any uh, anything to smoke. So uh, I'm gonna stick with that I'm gonna continue to be strong-minded in that area uh, and it's uh kind of you know boded well for me uh, throughout my life so I'm happy that I uh, took that route so before we dive into your career and some of the things that I've admired and want people to learn about you honesty but you're also famous for giving people second and third chances why do you give people second or third chances well for me Joe I've was a second and third chance guy. I was the person, and again, it goes back to Vanessa Jordan, who gave me opportunity. I was one of those guys that, you know, didn't like going to class, didn't do all the right things uh, in middle school and high school because of the environment I was in. And I was, wasn't was always the guy that was coachable at a young age. Coaches and teachers continued to believe in me, even when I made mistakes at every level. So I just believe that it's it's very important to continue to to give whether it's student athletes, uh, whether it's your children, uh, whether it's your friends, you always should give you know someone a second chance. Uh, and I remember coming into the the Eastern Michigan basketball program, and you know when we got our opportunity there in 2011, the first word that we used to lay the foundation was invest. You know, and everybody told me when I was taking over the program that we needed to get rid of those children or those student athletes. And I kept saying these guys were recruited here and they needed another chance to show, you know, themselves as players, uh, but more importantly, give them the opportunity to have a an enjoyable time with their college careers and, and in, in the process, you know, graduate. And I wanted them to have a great memory uh, about EMU. So that word invest was what we laid the foundation with. When we met with everybody, I think collectively as a staff, we collectively agreed that these guys deserved uh, an opportunity to finish their careers to Michigan and leave with a degree. And that's what we did. So uh, it's been a lot of uh, situations, whether I was coaching high school or at the college level, that guys made bad decisions. And those same guys who made bad decisions, whether it was myself, Coach Beheim, uh, Jim Christian, you know, and anybody else that I work with, those same individuals that we gave second chances to uh, were the same individuals who went on to graduate and maybe have great careers or they're doing something great in the world now uh, because of that second chance. You just mentioned someone, you were a second chance or a third chance. What's mm -hmm. an example? I can remember my second chances starting in elementary school. I remember uh, being at Hampton Elementary School. I was in the uh, fourth grade. I was, you know, selling candy, uh, now laters and Chico sticks and, and different things. And my science teacher, Miss White at the time, had warned me several times to stop selling candy in her class. 
And I came back a second time, a third time, and I'm still selling candy. So I remember one day she uh, went to reach in my pocket to grab it, and I pushed her hand away and kind of pushed her down, and she fell. And that was a huge mistake by me. I was never forget it. So I was suspended from Hampton Elementary, and I can remember they wouldn't allow me to come back. And I ended up going over to Bagley Elementary. Dr. David Porter was the principal. So he had a really good talk with me and my mom. And I can remember him saying that what you did is really worth expulsion. You should be, you know, kicked out of all of Detroit public schools. But because I've met you and and you seem to be a nice young man, I'm going to give you this opportunity to come to Bagley Elementary. Uh, That's why I have so much love for Bagley Elementary to this day, because they gave me that opportunity to stay in school. And so then I get over to Bagley and then I get into a fight because I'm the new student in the middle of the school year and get kicked out of school. And Dr. David Porter told me this is it. You haven't learned your lesson. You're coming over here. You're making trouble. My mom brings me back to school four days later, and he gives me another chance and allows me to come back to Bagley Elementary. And at that point, I say, you know what? I have to figure it out. Uh, I'm not going to keep getting these chances. Uh, I got to suppress these anger issues and kind of figure out how to uh, be more positive because I had a lot of pent up anger at that time that I can, you know, understand and relate to now that I didn't understand that I had going on because of the environment. But David Porter was the principal at Bagley Elementary that gave me unbelievable opportunity and probably a third chance. Uh, And it probably was a few more times in there that I was sent to the principal's office. But for whatever reason, uh, he continued to believe in me. And I ended up graduating from Bagley Elementary and then moving on to Bobian Middle School. All right, let's do a speed round, Mr. MBA. Mm -hmm. 24 seconds here. Troy Weaver. Intelligent warrior who is determined to succeed. Uh, He has had unwavering belief in himself and those he has placed around him. He's always three or four steps ahead of the the curve while being disciplined enough to stay focused in the moment. He loves to give opportunity. He's a great family man. Coach Casey. Defensive-minded coach who has had great success in basketball. Uh, I love listening and learning from the knowledge and stories he shared about his career from playing de- from his playing days at Kentucky and throughout his NBA coaching career. Coach Beheim. Coach B, uh, he awarded me the opportunity of a lifetime. I was able to learn and coach at one of the greatest basketball programs in history from one of the greatest coaches in the history of our game. He has a unique name, a unique man. He's did it for 40 plus years in a unique city at a unique university, which has led to a unique Hall of Fame career. A lot of love for Coach Behan. Coach Jim Christian. Coach Jim Christian is the best offensive coach I've ever been around. Tremendous X and O coach. He has put players time and time again in position to score. I don't know how he does it, but he's magical with the uh, the dry race board. Your high school coach, Coach Jordan. We met. And we clicked from the first hello. He gave me the vision and direction. Uh, He's a huge reason why I am where I am today. Not really sure what would have happened without his advice, but extremely thankful that we crossed paths and and God uh, put him as that angel in my life to, to point me in the right direction. Coach Perry Watson. Coach Watson, the greatest high school coach ever. Any city, any state, no one has did it better. Coach inspired me to want to dominate the PSL when I became a head coach at Crockett. My high school run draw was cut short, but my goal and motivation was always to become the next Perry Watson, and he's been one of the, the greatest coaches I've ever been around. How about Coach Tom Izzo? 
Coach Izzo, passionate, determined, wants to be great, challenges himself daily to keep his program at the top of college basketball. He loves to prove doubters wrong. When they say Iz can't do it, rest assured, he'll find a way to get it done. Rod Redding Murray. Rod Redding Murray, my best friend. Eminem is what they call us. He's been by my side for close to 35 years. I'm not sure there's two people on this earth that know each other as well as we do and have experienced as much as we have together. Obviously, I love Ra. Uh, he's like uh, my brother from another. Maurice Ager. Mo Ager changed my total trajectory and career as a coach. Uh, Mo opened doors for himself, his teammates, and the Crockett program while opening some major, major doors uh, for himself. I can't thank him enough for transferring to Crockett and believing in my vision that I had for him and our program at the time. Led us to the 2001 Class B State Championship and forever thankful he believed in me. Antonio Gates. Antonio Gates, the best player, hands down, that I've ever coached. Antonio is uh, is what I would call uh, the nicest toughest, meanest guy that you ever want to come across. Uh, his versatility made him special. He had the ability uh, to beat you in every aspect of the game, whether it was on the basketball or football field. Uh, he's another guy that, you know, helped put my coaching trajectory on the map. And I'm forever thankful that he was with that first group of guys that uh, we started our coaching careers with. Jay-Z. Jay-Z is one of the few humans on earth that I've been able to deeply relate to and connect with that I never met. I'm thankful for his music and how he's been able to motivate me many different times in my life. The most intellectual artist I've ever heard 27 years later, because I've been listening to him for 27 years now, and he's still currently the best rapper or artist in the world. It's unexplainable how someone can be at the top and remain this best for this long. You talk Tiger, LeBron, Serena, Brady, Floyd Mayweather, Beyonce, Jay-Z, iconic. Not another person making music that has been able to uh, to affect me the way he has. He's a special guy. All right. So everybody asks me all the time what it was like working for Murph. And a lot of stories. But the thing I will always take away is creating a mindset. What is creating a mindset to Rob Murphy? It starts with, you know, every day having that passion, desire, and belief that I always talk about, Dro. I think if you had those three things in life... You can be successful in anything you do. First thing you have to do is find something that you love to do where it doesn't feel like work. You have to love it. You have to be so passionate about it that you would do it every day for absolutely free. That's something you love. And then you have to have the desire to want to be great. You have to have the desire to want to be the best at what you're doing. So once you're passionate about something and you somehow find that desire to want to be the best at what you're doing, the third thing comes the belief, the belief in yourself, the unwavering belief that you can really do what you're trying to do. I believe I've developed that mindset at an early age. I don't know if it was my environment. I think some of it is my DNA, which I get from my mom because she was, you know, the ultimate leader at anything she was a part of. But being from Detroit, you know, understanding just having the blue collar mentality, being tough, rough, rugged when needed, but also being intelligent and methodical enough to teach, learn and execute while navigating in all situations. But the mindset is just having the discipline to uh, get up every day and, and carry out that passion, desire and belief in, in what you're trying to do. How do you think you implemented it in year one with the cruise? Yeah, well, for me, 
You know, I started off, you know, obviously being the president and the general manager, I knew that would be a challenge for me right away. But any challenge that I've been given, I've always, you know, kind of knocked down the door or either hit a home run. Always have found a way to be successful. So I knew right away on the business side in particular, because the basketball is just second nature. That's going to take care of itself. But on the business side, I had to create an environment of where I can get the community involved. So when you start talking about partnerships and sponsorships and raising money, for me, the first thing they said, are you afraid to ask for money? Because we have to raise $1.2 million, you know, to budget the franchise. So I immediately, you know, put my thinking cap on and said I was going to go to all the small businesses in the city of Detroit, use my relationships to get in the door, but also sell them on why they should invest and be a part of this franchise. So the mindset there for me every day was to sell the Motor City Cruise and uh, make sure I put us in position to raise that $1.2 million, which at the end of the day was $1.7 million, but sell the vision of making sure that our partners and sponsors can have some ownership. So once I put my mind to it, I began you know, to learn all the business nuances of, of what I was selling and how it can impact business in our community, how it can give some form of, you know, not ownership, but ownership to a professional franchise team, uh, how we can put people in floor seats and selling them on seeing the stars of tomorrow, while also, you know, implementing our education days to be able to touch all our surrounding students in the metro Detroit area. So just having the mindset and the discipline to to learn everything about business and continue to enhance your knowledge so you know what you're going in there to sell and what you're talking about and believe what you're talking about and um, just understanding and knowing that it was going to be an everyday grind. You couldn't allow and I couldn't allow nothing to get in the way of of making this franchise great. Uh, We got off to a great start and I'm happy about it. All right. So anytime you talk to players, so guys at Eastern, Mike Talley, Glenn Bryant, Deshante Riley, James Thompson, Tim Bond, Elijah Minnie, Paul Jackson, you would always talk about big time players make big time plays. Does this go hand in hand with this mindset mentality? Yeah. Well, when it comes to player, the mindset of really so success is built in your routine. So I would always talk to those guys about you know, being better than yesterday, getting 1% better each and every day. And, you know, we talked about domination, uh, having a mindset to want to win. Domination is just the exercise of control or influence over someone or something. You know, mastering what you do so you can impose your will to put yourself in position to win. You know, we always oppose the question to to our players, uh, and we have this debate in our front office. Are you a love-to-win player or a hate-to-lose player? So for me, when I pose that question, more times than not, the players that say they hate to lose have more championships or have more winning under their belt because they have the mindset is that they're going to do anything in their power not to lose. So when you develop a mindset of, and me, I, I throw the word domination in there because that's important. Because if you can get to the point where you've perfected your craft enough to dominate your opponent, you put yourself in position to win every single time. But I would always you know, talk to our guys about making sure they understand how important the routine is because success is built in your routine. Uh, and if you can be disciplined enough to carry out that routine each and every day, you'll put yourself in position to be successful. And I always told our guys to strive for perfection as well. You'll never be perfect, but if you strive for perfection, when you fall short, you'll still be great to good. So that was one of my things. Two things, routine. Mm-hmm. Walking around your house, showed me your workout room. You still have these green shoes from when you were 
at Eastern. You used to tell the guys all the time that you would wear the same thing to practice all the time. Same mm-hmm. shirt, same shorts, same shoes. Is that an example of just routine? Yeah, I would always, you know, tell our guys uh, it's important to follow a routine because success is built in your routine. And the routine is just a sequence of actions regularly followed that you don't have to think about. And that's even in, within my clothes every day, whether it's getting up and I'm working out at 6 a.m. every day and I'm on the bike, I'm on the treadmill, I'm getting my lift in, you know, I'm ironing my clothes the night before so I know what I'm wearing. I'm getting up and I'm, I'm showering, I'm making my bed before I leave the house. And I take pretty much the same route each and every day, whether I'm dropping off my son at school or I'm going on to PPC, going to my job. So I think it's important to have a routine so you can put yourself in position not to have to think about unnecessary things every day. That kind of you know brings blockage when you can be putting that time into thinking about more important things. So I'm a routine type of guy. I'm a very simple type of guy. And I would always tell our guys that because in today's world, Drew, more times than not, those guys got caught up in wearing a different pair of shoes for every practice or at least every game, whether they were a certain color or they were high top, mid cut, whether they were Kobe's, Dame Lillard's, LeBron James. Like they always worried about what they wore opposed to how they were playing. And I always wanted them to just, you know, focus on on the team aspect of things. Let's be together. Let's be basic. Let's be fundamentally sound and keep the main thing the main thing. I believe that helped us, you know, have some really successful teams because of that approach. Another thing that I really admired and I worked for you for 10 seasons, you do not micromanage. And I know you mentioned to us a bunch of times that that's how Coach Beheim led his program, but like, why not micromanage? And you still do that now in your roles with the Pistons organization. I think it goes back to the people you hire and you put in place to help you be successful, that's important. You have to hire like-minded people, disciplined people. If you hire disciplined people, you know they're going to carry out whatever tasks given to them each and every day. And they're working on the same wavelength and have the same mindset as you. So I think hiring the right people is most important. And you allow people to do their jobs at a high level. I've never been one that have experienced someone standing over my shoulder and watching you know, each and everything that I do. And I know at Syracuse, it taught me more than anything. There were no office hours, no matter where you were working from, whether it was at home, whether it was in the office, you know, Coach Beheim just wanted to make sure you got the job done and not to get off the subject. But COVID, you know, shown us and changed the world to to show, you know, coaches that were you know, in the office from eight to eight, that that was overrated because you can get so much more done with the comfortability of doing it together with your staff and making them believe that they are, are leaders and they have ownership in your program. But more importantly, hiring great leaders in your organization. And when I say leaders, that's from top to bottom, whether it's, uh, you know, from the general manager being Troy Weaver, being a high, high level executive. And if we're hiring an intern, we scour the country and hire the best interns available throughout the country. So if you have high level executives or high level, you know, employees throughout your organization, there'll be no need to micromanage because everybody in the program will be disciplined enough to carry out tasks in order for entire empire to be successful. I'm pretty sure this started at Crockett and I know it, it went through Kent and then Syracuse, but you always talk to us and the people that work for you about building player relationships. What has been your key to building great player relationships? I think being able to communicate is the most important aspect of of building any relationship. You talk about the honesty, the transparency, guys knowing that, you know, when they're talking to you, they're getting the truth. I think understanding the time and moment is not, you know, just always about basketball. It's about, you know, talking about 
lives, understanding, you know, what's important in their lives, whether it's, you know, the academics that they're excelling in or where they may be struggling, what's going on with their families back home. You know, some student athletes uh, can be from rough areas and have the burden of, of wondering what's going on back home with their moms, their dads, their uncles, aunts, grandmothers, grandfathers, uh, siblings or, or whomever. But understanding the importance of asking about them and really getting to know their families and really showing genuine care. And then, you know, you build those relationships, you know, on the floor as well. Anytime a player sees improvement, whether it's in the weight room or whether it's on the floor, if you're actually taking time out with them, those blood, sweat and tears, uh, and you're going through through that process with them, they gain, uh, you know, more and more respect for you and they continue to fall in love with the process with you of getting better. Uh, and then in the film room as well, players want to know you care. And over, a, a, you know, a long period of time throughout my career, I've always found out from each and every player I coach, what pushes his buttons, what pushes his buttons in, in, in a sense to, you know, what he may be thinking. I would always, you know, tell my assistant coaches on my staff, you, you have to be in the know and you have to know everything. And I learned that by being in the know and knowing everything when I was a high school coach and being in the know and knowing everything when I was a college assistant. And sometimes that can be a little bit overbearing, but you have to build those relationships. You have to be able to communicate and it can't just be about basketball. It has to be about all aspects of the student athletes lives. So when you were at Kent, did you really convince Coach Christian to put these video game systems in the locker room? Like, is that a way you built these relationships? Yeah, well, that, that was just another way because I grew up playing video games. I think I credit video games, you know, for helping save my life as well. Uh, I fell in in love with Nintendo and Sega Genesis at, at a very early age. And I remember being in high school. That was a way we built the relationships with with our high school players, I can remember a lot of late nights uh, when we were coaching at Central High School and, and Antonio Gates and Dante Darling and Jimmy Twyman and all those guys would kind of be at our house because uh, me and Ronde Teleferro at the time were roommates. We both had graduated from college, so we had a two-bedroom townhouse uh, with a basement, and we set up video game shop down there for us to play and have our friends over at that time. We were 22 and 23, but you know, those guys were 16 and 17 years old and they were in the video games as well. So once I went to the college level, you know, I just, you know, made, I remember Jim Christian and, and uh, Gino Ford and those guys were, and Rob Cinderoff were cracking jokes about, you know, me playing video games. And I'm like, guys, I know you didn't grow up the way I did, but you don't understand. This is a great way to build a relationship with the players. So I did talk uh, Coach Christian and putting one in our Kent State Lounge and we ended up having, uh, you know, a Madden Challenge. Uh, both years I was there, uh, we spent time, you know, in the summers and, you know, whether it was after practice or, you know, sometimes guys would even take their games on the road uh, and we would be locked in together. After going over scouting reports, we would say, OK, let's get a game of Madden. In. And that was just a way where we can spend time with communicating with the guys and, and being around them. And it was genuine. It was something that we both had a, a, a really strong interest in. And it, it helped uh, build a lot of relationships. You just said you and Coach Telefero won a state championship when you were 22, 23 years old. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, that was incredible, Drew. I mean, we had just, you know, graduated from college. And I remember going into our first coaching meeting. He was 23. I was 22. And all these, like, big time, 
what I would call Hall of Fame coaches were in there. Johnny Golston, Harry Harrison, Gerald Weatherspoon, Robert Menifee, Reuben Washington, Henry Washington. It was some great, great coaches. I remember those meetings used to be at Callahan all yeah, the time. They were at Callahan Hall up on the second floor. So I can remember <laughs> Coach Telefero going in, and me and him going into the meetings. And I can remember Harry Harrison, you know, as we were asking a bunch of questions. And Harry Harrison, you know, said to us as we were walking out of our second coaches meeting right before the season was starting, it was like, hey, young fellas, let me give you some advice. You know, you know, have a lot of patience. You're going to get your ass kicked, you know, a lot in your first few years. So just have some patience. So me and Telefero, we looked at each other and we said, wow, did he really just say that to us? Ironically, Northern was coming over to Central High School for the first game that year on December 5th. And I can remember Northern coming over there and us giving the pep talk of using what Coach Harrison has said to us. And we told Antonio and Dante, Dwight Smith and all those guys, you know, that was kind of our motivational speech and what he said to us walking out of coaching meeting. And I remember Lamar Bigsby being on that team, but we beat Northern by about 25 that day. And we started the season off 1-0, and had a great season. I think we beat Northern twice that year. And from that point on, my mindset, as I mentioned before, I want to be the next Perry Watson and we me and Telefair both wanted to dominate the PSL so we were the new kids on the block and I think we kind of changed the game and as we continued to move on you know those older coaches began to respect us and understood we were here to stay so you always used to tell the staff that you were a world-class evaluator Murph why are you so great at evaluating talent you know I, I draw that's hard to say because I think God gave me an innate ability to see whatever talent it could be and be able to judge it as football, basketball, golf, anything. It's an innate ability to be able to to just see, understand, and I have a gut feeling about it. So that has helped me throughout my career, but also confirmed it because I remember seeing Maurice Ager with a cast on his hand and he was shooting with his offhand at Tinder Recreation Center. And it was my second year at Crockett, and I knew we needed some players. And as I watched him, just his length, and I watched his athleticism, and uh, when he got his cast off, I would watch him work out. And I remember telling his mom, his brother Antoine, his sister Celeste, and his cousin Rico at the time, if he came to Crockett, I knew he would be a Division One player. At that time, he was on JV at Southfield High School. And when Coach Kelso at Southfield High School, Moeger went in and had a talk with him and told him he would be leaving. And he told him, yeah, it's fine. You can go somewhere else because you're going to have to spend another year on JV if you stayed. So long story short, Maurice comes to Crockett in his 10th grade year. He's honorable mention all state. His 11th grade year, uh, he becomes a top 30 player in the country. And at that time, I thought he would be an NBA player. And the rest has been history. But that's just one form of evaluation. I can give you one with Antonio Gates. I thought he should have stuck with you know, football, even in college. But, you know, he had this fixation on basketball and he was in love with it. But I told Antonio after his, you know, last senior game at Kent State that, you know, we had wrote this letter to all, at the time, 30 NFL teams. And we had six teams that was interested in coming in into Kent State and watching run routes. Antonio was thinking about going overseas. And I said, Antonio, you have a career in the NFL. If you would just buy into this and you get in the right program, I don't think you should ever play basketball again. Long story short, the teams came in, watched him work out, met with the San Diego Chargers. I was like working as his agent at the time. And I remember when the San Diego Chargers watched him catch the ball, Tim Brewster was the tight end coach. And he told me that Antonio wouldn't get drafted. But if I would talk him into signing with the Chargers in two to three years, Antonio would be a Pro Bowl tight end. So... 
again, that's just another. I don't know how I knew or how I had a feel that he can become an NFL player, but that was the route and the way I was pushing him from the second his college career was over in basketball. And two years later, he was in the NFL and he made the Pro Bowl in his second year and he had a 16 year career. So I just credit God for being able to give me whatever that ability is to hear Jay-Z 27 years ago and really believe and argue and debate that he was better than Biggie. He was better than Tupac. And these are at the time when these guys were alive. I thought Jay-Z was the best. And 27 years later, he's still the best. So for whatever reason, and I always remind all the guys that argue, whether it was Rob, whether it was Rondé, Kareem, all these guys that we, you know, not all my friends that I talk to and we debate with, I remind them of all these things and all these evaluations. And I'm just fortunate enough that God can give me that ability and, and it's helped me make a career out of it. So one of the things that was amazing about you is we would go to an event, let's just say somewhere in the summer peach jam, and you'd be like, you'd watch a half a game and you'd be like, I've seen enough, Joe. We can offer him or not good enough or so-and-so. And then you were magical when you get a player in your office, especially on recruiting visits. We had great success. We're going to talk about Eastern here in a second. But like, what's the secret sauce for you in closing these deals and convincing players that they should play for you? Um, you know, just obviously starts with the honesty and transparent. Anytime you can talk to a parent and a student athlete and sell them your vision of what and how you feel they can be successful in your program, I'm really good at painting that picture. I think it's very important, especially when you're talking to the parents of student athletes. Nothing is more important than academics uh, and graduating student athletes. I think over a 10 year run we had, we graduated 96% of our student athletes. I believe it was 32 out of 34 which was number one in the MAC conference and top 15 in the country in college basketball. So being able to sell the academic piece and then understanding their games, you know, whether they were going to come in and be impact players or having the honesty or being transparent enough to tell them they would have to come in in red shirt. Now, we did lose some guys because I was always honest, but I think being able to communicate that honesty in a positive way. It was something that always helped us. There were some players that I would tell that if they came in and worked hard, they would be, you know, day one starters or starters right away, like a Carrington Ward or James Thompson. But then there were other players, maybe like a Tim Bond, where I thought his body was thin, but it was a chance he may have to red shirt. Uh, And anything that happened better than that would be icing on the cake right away. But more importantly, he needed to come in and get stronger and and knock the academic side out. And maybe if he didn't play his first year, he would graduate early and he can work on his master's. So it was so many different you know, ways of of selling your vision for what you have for a player. And for whatever reason, when we got them on campus and you guys did an unbelievable job, uh, you know, in the process of of making guys feel comfortable. So my job of closing the door was was always easy because I believe in myself. I believed in the program and I believe what we were building. All right. So last thing on evaluation, the Mm -hmm. Pistons just crushed it in the NBA draft. What was your role or this ability to evaluate? Like, how did that come into play with this latest draft with the Pistons? Yeah, well, my role, ultimately, my number one role is preparing our franchise for the NBA draft each and every year. I oversee the personnel and scouting department. So, uh, you know, that's the charge that I lead. So that's gathering intel and and then evaluation. I mean, we have an unbelievable team of of scouts, longtime scout Durant Walker and and Doug Ash, just to name those guys. Those guys are, are been unbelievable. And we got a host of young guys that will be bright stars in the future. Uh, so we have a really good team. But I guess, you know, for me, Dro, the most important thing for Troy is identifying 
needs and what we need to address on our roster. What are we missing? And he's done an unbelievable job, I think, over the last two and a half years of really addressing all of our needs, whether it's draft, free agency, or trade. But draft in particular, this year, we were really, really fortunate to land, you know, two guys we were very high on. You know, we love Jay Ivey, you know, a dynamic you know, guard with the ball who has great size. He has speed, quickness. He's able to shoot the basketball a lot better than what people think. And he's a really, really good passer. Uh, and he's able to defend as well. And he's one of the hardest workers uh, you'll ever be around. And then to get, you know, Jalen Duran, who we felt was the top five prospect coming into the draft, you know, obviously size, uh, super athlete, but has a lot of skill and is a really, really good passer. Uh, and we think he'll continue to grow into his game as well. But, you know, being able to land those those two guys with what we had on our roster already, you know, put us in position to get to ground zero where you can start, you know, seeing some of the fruits of your labor here in the future. So a lot of people don't know this, but you weren't Eastern Michigan's first choice, were you? No, Joe, not at all. You know, this is funny. You bring that up. You know, I almost didn't get an interview and I can remember being in Syracuse and they said they were only going to interview 10 candidates and I got word that they already had the 10. So I remember fighting to get in the interview and fighting to get my resume in front of Derek Gregg at the time and to be a hundred percent transparent, Derek Gregg sent the message through somebody else that it was no way I can get the job and I shouldn't waste my time coming to Eastern Michigan for an interview. I guess they had their sights set on whoever they were going to hire. So for whatever reason, I continued to fight. I had Dave Bing making calls. I had everybody in Detroit I knew sending letters because I just wanted my shot to get an interview. But when I got that message, um, I was discouraged. And that was on a Thursday. And then my agent called me that Friday. And I can't remember how he got me in the pool, which I was the 11th person in a 10-man pool. And he said, Rob, is, you know, I know it's Friday. We got you in the pool. I don't know if it's for HR purposes. I don't know if you really should go interview for the job, but you've kind of pressed the issue that you wanted this opportunity. So if you want this opportunity, they're going to fly you in tonight, and you're going to have to interview at 8 in the morning with the president because they have graduation at 11. And then the other people or the, you know, the board members would be there to interview you. So he said, so if you want to do it, you can do it. But if not, so I remember sitting on the bed and I was, you know, I shared that information with Tanisha at the time. And she's like, you've put so much effort in calling people and having people send emails and letters that you might as well go and interview just for the experience. Like, so don't let the people down that have helped you get to this point. And I give her a lot of credit. I was pulling out. I was like, you know what? Why would I fly there tonight to interview tomorrow? They have graduation. They want to fit me in. So I said, you know what? I told my agent, I'll do it. You know, so they booked me a flight to come in. I'll never forget. I land uh, at the Detroit airport and Mike Malik came to pick me up. Right. He take me to the hotel and we had some really good conversation. He was really a nice guy. And I remember asking him, do I really have a shot at this job, Mike? And he's like, uh, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> he didn't want to say it. He probably wanted to say, no, you don't have a shot. But, you know, you're here. Um, but he was really nice. No, you. I mean, you're here. So, you know, just go in and do the best you can. So I remember calling Coach Behind when I got to to my hotel room. It was going on about 11 o'clock, almost midnight. And um, I called Coach Beheim because I had asked him, could he reach out to the president for me? I said, Coach, can you just reach out to her? They just called me today. I really don't want to go, but I'm going to go and check it out. So Coach, you know, said, I talked to the president. You know, I I think they're going to give you a fair shot, but I don't know. But I think they'll give you a fair shot from what she's saying. 
He said, but you got one of the best jobs in the world. So go in there and just be yourself and say what you want to say. I mean, <laughs> what, what's the worst going to happen? You're going to come back here to Syracuse and we'll get you a better job next year if this doesn't work out. But really tell them what you want to tell them. Interview them. Don't let them interview you. Just go in there and, and knock it out the park. So I felt really good after he gave me that pep talk at almost midnight that Friday. And I knew I had to get up at six thirty, seven o'clock to get ready. So I went into the interview process knowing I was number 11. I knew I was nowhere in the top five, but I was really, really prepared. So I went in there, had a great conversation with Dr. Martin at the time in her office. She wasn't expecting for me to present as well as I did. And I knew that because when I was, you know, getting up from talking to her for 30 minutes, she said, you know, I'm really impressed, but let me give you some advice because I enjoy selling yourself. But when you go in this room with the Board of Regents, you have to talk less. Mm. So I said to myself, well, she just enjoyed it. And she just gave me a compliment and she said she liked everything I had to say. So I was going to go in there and talk more. And I, all I had on my mind was Coach Beheim. He said, go in there and interview them. Don't let them interview you. So I went to the next phase of uh, the Board of Regents. I did the same thing, kind of blew those guys away. And once I got to Derek Gregg, I knew I had did a good job because the first words he said to me is, what have you said to everybody at this university. And I said, well, why you say that, Dr. Gregg? He said, because everybody's raving about you. Tell me, show me, tell me exactly what you just did for the last few hours. I need to hear this myself. So I kind of presented the same thing and, you know, why I was the perfect fit. And uh, a long story short, I left Eastern Michigan's campus. I flew to Baltimore. I land. No, actually, I stayed overnight and I flew to Baltimore on a Sunday because I was setting myself up to go recruiting for Syracuse that Monday morning. I was going to visit some schools in Baltimore and in the D.C. area. Uh, and I'll never forget, I'm walking to uh, Hertz rental car, and I got a call from a 734 number, and it was Derek Gregg, and they were offering me the jobs. It was unbelievable twist of events within 72 hours. I really, again, that was one of those times. It was all about mindset, passion, desire, belief. I just knew if I got in front of the university, I could sell myself. So 10 years as the head coach at Eastern Michigan, Matt coach of the year in year one, second winningest coach in school history, now in the NBA. But as you reflect, how proud are you of what you have accomplished? You know, I'm, I'm extremely proud because it's hard to become a Division One head coach as an African-American, number one. We don't get many opportunities. And when we do, we don't get great jobs. You're always going to, you know, for the most part, you get a job to where it's a really bad job or it's a tough job. And you got to go in there and, and wave a magic wand or do everything in your power just to get the program to ground zero to where you can have some success. So I'm extremely thankful to Eastern Michigan for giving me the opportunity. I can't thank Derek Gregg enough. He's one of the best, you know, obviously ADs I've ever worked for. It was uh, sad that it was only two years because he's the guy that hired me and he was the true supporter of Rob Murphy. But I'm forever thankful uh, for Eastern Michigan. But what people don't realize, you know, when you talk Eastern Michigan and you talk the tenure of Rob Murphy, I probably can write a book on how to survive four presidents and four ADs. That was the toughest challenge. And that's also something I'm most proud of being able to overcome, you know, different hires and working for different presidents and different athletic directors who, when they come in, you know, want to change the narrative and put in place who they would like to put in place. And that's understandable. But for me to be able to uh, to be at Eastern for 10 years and have to overcome that, you know, every other year 
and wondering or trying to please the person that I'm working for was really, really tough at times. But I was able to overcome it and we were able to have success. So that's also something I'm proud of as well. So why the 2-3 zone and how did you tweak the 2-3 zone? Well, first thing I'll say there, there are zones and then there's the orange zone. Syracuse zone that I learned. It's a proven zone for over 40 years. There's a lot of different zones and a lot of different defense, but I learned at Syracuse. It's a special two that was hard to prepare for and play against. My first season hit Syracuse, Joe, to be honest, I had many, many questions. I would always question, why don't we play some man-to-man? But at the end of the year, we were like 27 and 5. And I'm like, man, why am I questioning this? But it takes so long to really understand the nuances of it. And it was not into the middle of the conference season to where I started to really understand it and really master it, all right? The first advantage that the zone gave to us that it always took away penetration and post-up play, right? So your best guard was going to struggle to penetrate and your leading score down low wasn't going to be able to just get the ball and go to work. Right away, a coach is always game planning on how to get the ball to the best post-up perimeter player in areas where they can be successful. And it's really tough to do against the zone. Secondly, the zone makes you think and makes you you think and it makes you keep thinking. I found that players that had high basketball IQs and players that were able to read defenses were always effective, but there were not many high, high, high level IQ basketball players at the mid-major level. So right away, we had huge success. When we brought the zone into the MAC, it was something that they never seen. We were one of the top defensive teams or the top defensive team seven out of 10 years that we were at Eastern. And a lot of it was because of the way we moved and the different schemes of the zone. We were tweaking it in a different way because we wanted to keep the ball out the high post and we wanted to make sure we were contesting shots. We felt that if we can get you to take a three in the last four or five seconds of the shot clock, we will be in position to rebound the basketball. What was most important for us too, and you know, a lot of people don't understand that we implemented the three-second drill to where we were going to cut your transition points out. So if a team came in averaging 16 to 18 points in transition and we would hold them to four points in transition, we were taking 20% of their game average away and that would somehow slow the game down and put us in position to be successful on defense. I think over time, the shooting has picked up overall in the game of basketball, made it a little bit tougher because anytime a team can hit shots from the outside, it stretches your zone, then they're able to get it in the inside and then they can work inside out. But I think we really taught the zone at a high level. We taught it each and every day like you would teach a man a man. We had some great defensive players. First defensive player of the year in the history of Eastern Michigan basketball was Deshante Riley. Tim Bond was the second and he's the all-time steals leader. So when you have a guy who was the single season block leader and one guy who's the all-time steals leader, but you're playing in a zone that shows that we're active and we're teaching it at a high level. Then you had other guys like Carrington Ward, who was an exceptional in our defense as well. And our quick guards, whether it was Paul Jackson, whether it was Mike Talley, whether it was Ty Tony, Willie Mangum, Ray Lee, who didn't love to play defense, but even he would time to time, you know, be active up top to get deflections and steals that can uh, put you in transition. So, you know, the zone was great because it was a defensive-minded program. We tweaked it, and we taught it, and we drilled it, and it became special. The ball pressure, it almost mirrored man-to-man in so many ways. And then the closing bump, people ask me about your zone all the time and the Syracuse zone. I don't do enough justice to Coach Murphy because it was almost magical. I mean, every time you let us film session, I learned something. But like, how did you come up with the idea of ball pressure and then just like keeping the ball out of the corners? Well, you know, I came up with the closing bump. We were playing in Madison Square Garden. 
And we were warming up. I'll never forget. We were playing Oklahoma State. It was John Lucas Jr. and the, the Graham brothers at that time. And we were warming up, and I was just trying to figure out a way to get the guys moving. So the guards, I was, you know, I just told them to get back to the high post and close out. And then I remember they had a, a corner shooter. So I, then I was, you know, telling Akeem Warwick at the time, like, you know, close out to the wing and then put your hand in the passing lane and bump back. These guys are going to try to get the, the ball in the corner. So it really became a warm up drill that I then took into practice. And then we implemented it over the next six years that I was at Syracuse. So with the guards, Hop would take the guards and do the closing bump drill with the guards. And I would do it with the forwards every day. And then, you know, I implemented the chest on the ball because the anchor of the defense was so important. So that was a term that Coach Beheim thought was cool, that your center would just mirror the ball wherever he was. And he'll be in position to short corner trap. He'll be in position to get to the corner. Uh, and he'll be at, in position to rebound the basketball if you just made sure you centered chest to the ball and in the center centered the ball. So I know we could text Coach Beeline right now and you and him would be talking about the Pistons players. But do you ever walk by him in your offices and just kind of smirk at him that for one night you got the best of John Beeline and the Michigan you, Wolverines? You know what? I, I never really bring it up to him, Drew, to be honest. And we and Coach Beeline, we have some great talks. We had a few, you know, great debates going today. Uh, but he's a great guy. Unbelievable coach. Unbelievable worker. But the Michigan win was huge for us, Drew. Yeah. We were in year three of the program at that time. We were turning the corner and trying to become relevant. We felt we had a good team but needed another signature win to continue to gain respect in recruiting in our own state and in the MAC conference. We had already beat Purdue the year before, I believe, and I knew putting together another Big Ten win could be great for our program. I was tired of hearing we was a stepchild down the street. Okay, that, so that was motivation, you know, for me. And I made sure that our players knew that we were called the step brother down the street as well. And I remember the first year they beat us really bad too. Horrible. Yeah, it was Trey Burke and Tim Hardaway and all of those guys. They just really clowned us. And I knew uh, if we got an opportunity to play them again, I was going to make it to Super Bowl. I actually remember losing the Dayton on the road after starting the season seven and one. So I knew we would be pretty good. And we went into the Michigan game and they had beat Syracuse a week before in the same building. But I knew we were a pretty good team. I knew we were confident. I remember preparing for Michigan as, as a bounce back game after we started seven. No, but we knew how they would attack the zone because they had played Syracuse a week before. Uh, I remember it being your scout. Actually, Joe, that was that was your scout. You had got the game for us. You had worked so hard to trick them into playing us. I still don't know how you did it. You, you're the scheduling guru. But I remember that being your scout, uh, probably one of your best scouts ever because you wanted the game as well. And I remember going in that. The stage was set. Uh, I remember the pregame talk, talking about being us being a stepchild, us them giving us 90000 to come here to get beat by 20. And, you know, I never used how we would get paid when we went into the big venue, but I made sure I... I saved it for that Michigan game. But we out executed them for 40 minutes. Uh, we were able to walk out of the Chrysler Center with a W. To beat any team coached by John Beeline is a feather in anybody's cap, especially at Eastern Michigan University. But all of our student athletes, all of the Ipsy community, it meant so much more than just a win. Uh, beating Michigan was one of the top five coaching wins. I know in my coaching career and what it did for us as we moved forward was amazing. You hate to lose. Never been around someone. <laughs> yeah. Can't, I can't take it. <laughs>
Okay, so how have you countered this? Like now as you get older, and what has been your mindset with approaching defeat? Yeah, it's tough because I hate to lose. And I've prayed about this over the years. I have such a, a mentality because I believe you prepare each and every day to win in everything you do in your life. So when you bring basketball into that, from all the summer workouts, summer practices, you know, the fall workouts, the fall practices, the film sessions, everything that you put into it, you're putting all of that effort into it to have a successful season. So game by game, scout by scout, you're preparing to win. So when you lose, for me, it feels like we failed each and every time. Now, you can learn from losing. Yes, I understand it. But for whatever reason, it, it just has never, you know, sat well in my system. I hate losing more than I enjoy winning. I don't think that'll ever change. When I win a basketball game or when I was coaching and we won or played, to me, you're supposed to win. We prepared. We're supposed to beat that team. But if you lose, it just didn't sit well with me because it was, you know, we failed. Failure has always been tough because I'm super competitive. And for me, I've always, you know, wanted to be successful. I don't know. It was, could come from, you know, the obstacles I was faced with. And I've always had to overcome and nothing has ever been easy. So for me, fighting to be best or fighting to be next or fighting to just to get a turn. My competitive spirit has just been always just over the top. So it's just been been tough when you lose for me. Even in the NBA, how do you deal with it in the NBA? It has not changed, believe it or not. But I've learned, you know, in the NBA, you have to, to move on and move forward because the games come so quick and you get a chance to redeem yourself so quick. And we would always say, even at Eastern Michigan, don't let this loss lose you the next game. I'm no different now. Being in the front office, I've had times where I've, you know, have went in the Motor City Cruise locker room in particular and had a word or two with some players or with the team when I didn't see us playing, you know, Piston basketball. And that was just, you know, bringing the energy, effort, and execution to the game, whoever we were playing. That just will never leave me. Losing doesn't sit well with me. I'm a competitor. And, you know, as Herm Edwards say, you play to win the game. I know earlier in the podcast, we talked about the word domination. However, I want to circle back to this word, Murph, again. What is your definition of domination? So domination for me, Dro, as I said, it's the exercise of control or influence over someone or something. Mastery, supremacy, power, imposing your will to make sure you can dominate your opponent or you can just dominate your day. I'm a person who is known for hating to lose, right? I hate to lose more than I love to win. So I feel if we can dominate you, there's no chance I'll lose or it's no chance we'll lose. I would always tell our teams, if we can win the game 100 to zero, I would love to do it because I love to dominate. I would do it every single time. That's not a realistic situation. But once you develop that mindset that I'm going to master my opponent, I'm going to master my craft, you put yourself in position to win. But the mindset continues to grow and it puts you in position to dominate. It's the mama mentality that everybody talks about. It's the reason why Kobe Bryant continued to excel and continue to just you know, no matter what was in his way, he continued to, to be successful over a 20-year span in the NBA because he mastered his craft and he had a certain type of uh, a will 
uh, to dominate his opponent. It's all about maximizing your potential at the highest level. I thank God that I've been allowed to to dominate in most aspects of my life. And I'm just talking about dominating the day, being disciplined enough to carry out an active plan that I've had in place, you know, at whatever program I've been in or whatever organization I've been tied to, just having the discipline to to dominate the day and do everything in my power to be successful. And we can go back to many obstacles and challenges I had to overcome throughout my life. And when you just think about that for a minute, getting to the point where I was able to go to college, I was able to you know, be disciplined enough without much support to graduate and get my degree in education. And when you just think about me starting off in 1996 as a junior varsity coach at Central High School, like when you just really think about that, all I ever wanted to do was be a high school coach and be an educator in the Detroit public school system, but always had a competitive nature and always had a dominant personality. So, you know, you start out as this high school coach and then you win a state championship as a varsity assistant the following year where the team hadn't won a state championship in 81 years. So you're saying to yourself, how is this happening? But you're putting the work in, you're passionate, you had a desire to be great, and you had a belief that you can do it as a 22-year-old coach to impact young men. So then two years later after Central, we go over to Crockett High School, which is a vocational high school, without a gym, and we're in a trailer. And everybody told me, there's no way you'll win there. So then you look at the Class B past state championships. So you say, okay, it's been Chris Weber for three or four years. You got Shane Battier for three or four years. You got Brent Darby for three or four years. You got Maurice Seawright for three or four years. So you're talking about Country Day, River Rouge, and Orchard Lake, all dominant high schools in Class B. But then three years later, Crockett High School wins the Class B state championship. So when you just think about that for a minute, like Detroit Country Day, River Rouge, and Orchard Lake St. Mary's, Crockett Technical High School. In three years, we won the state title. So I say to myself, how did that happen? And at the time, I was about 26 years old, but it was always my competitive nature, my competitive spirit, whether it was going out selling the best seventh and eighth graders, that Crockett was the best thing on earth when it really couldn't even compete with other schools, but giving them the vision and direction of my plan and how I can help them get just a college scholarship and be better than anybody expected they can be and then buying into it. Like, there's nothing short of incredible. I mean, I never forget those years. And, you know, I was one of the high school, youngest high school coaches in the history of the state to win a state title at that time. To win it in Class B was is, is still, like, unbelievable. So you fast forward, talking about a junior high school coach, at Central High School in 1996. And then you fast forward to an assistant GM of the Detroit Pistons in 2022. Now, it's all God's will. And I pray and I'm thankful every day. But I'm also thankful that God gave me the competitive spirit, the discipline, the passion, desire, the belief in myself to be able to get from where I was in 1996 to where I am in 2022. And it was so many things that had to happen right. And so many people had to give me opportunities. So many people had to support and believe in everything I pretty much sold for us all to be successful. And I'm extremely thankful for that. But it all comes back to the the mindset and, and wanting to dominate. And now that I'm not coaching a team, I get up and try to dominate my day every day and whatever that may mean. Just having the mindset and the discipline to do whatever it takes, whatever task at hand that day to execute it and do it to the best of your ability. So one of my fall goals is to reread your book. I literally have it out. I want to reread it again. What was your mindset in creating the book? Was it therapeutic? What was your thought process 
in writing a book. Once I started my foundation, you know, I wanted to make sure I continue to make an impact and give back to the city in, in which I come from, Detroit. But so many people, you know, have told me over the years, man, you have an unbelievable story. For you to be where you are, you're extremely fortunate. And at some point, you need to tell it. So I began to sit down and, and write three years later after my foundation was up and running. And I wanted to write the book as a self-help book to tell my story, to show the young students and the young youth that your circumstances don't dictate your outcome and you can overcome whatever obstacles you're faced with to be successful. So once I uh, you know, got into the book, I then realized it was therapeutic. It took me four years to complete the book. The first two chapters alone probably took a year and a half just to dive deep into a depressed childhood in some areas to where, you know, losing your mom and not having a father. I can remember just putting my head down and continuing to grind it out and never really dealing with the heartbreak of losing a parent and someone that was that close to you. I had never talked to anybody about it. I had never went to therapy about it. So I thought being able to write the book and talk about it out loud, to record it, to write it, uh, was very therapeutic for me. And it seemed uh, going through that process, I was able to release a lot of you know, anxiety or maybe depression that I had built up inside me that I had held on to for a very, very long time. You mentioned the foundation, the Rob Murphy Foundation. You mentioned Bagley, the influence had in your life, Coach Jordan. What is the goal, your mission with your foundation? Uh, It's just every child deserves opportunity. There are so many children out there that are struggling with, whether it's academic challenges, whether they're not knowing where their next meal is coming from at home. They don't have any support in any aspect of their life. I just want to be able to bring light to the youth, especially in the Bagley community in Detroit and surrounding areas when I can. Sometimes you just... You know, you may be able to touch one person or you may be able to touch a 100,000 of them. For me, my coach Jordan coming into my life when he did is proven the effect that a coach or mentor can have or make for you or on you. And I just want to be that person for so many of our youth. So as long as I'm in a position to give and and share my time and and finances and whatever I can do to help inspire our young students, uh, our young youth to be better in all aspects of their life, I'm going to continue to do that as much as I can. So the other day we're at the Michigan State Fair, we run into your son, RJ, and my son idolizes RJ. He is one of the most impressive young men, I think at 14, that you'll mm-hmm. ever encounter. Just had a picture with your daughter mm-hmm. yesterday at school. You, you flew <laughs> to her mm-hmm. first day of school. She's crushing it lacrosse, and she's a wonderful young lady too. Like, what is family? You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but what does family truly mean to Rob Murphy? Yeah, so for me, it's nothing more important than seeing my kids grow and become successful in all aspects of their life. How I grew up is always like, you know, at the top of the forefront for me, understanding where I come from. You know, it's always been tough. And I've always said throughout my life when, you know, I had, you know, children of my own that I would do everything in my power for them not to endure some of the things that I had to go through growing up. And I I would do everything I could in my power to see that they were successful. So this is nothing more than me than just giving back and putting them in position however I can to be successful, you know, right now in their lives, but really setting them up to be productive adults. It's nothing more gratifying to see my son excelling at U of D high school, ironically, which is three blocks away from where I went to 
elementary school at and a half a mile away from where I went to high school at, another half a mile away from where I went to middle school at. I mean, it's just come full circle in that regard. But to go to a high level academic institution as the UD Jesuit and be able to excel, he's already far ahead of me academically. Uh, when I watch him uh, perform as a varsity tennis player, I didn't play varsity sports until I was a junior in high school. So he's already a step ahead of me in that regard. And the same for, you know, Ryan as well. I mean, she's uh, incredibly smart. Uh, she has a 4.0. Uh, she's excelling in four different sports and she's doing it at a high level. So it's nothing more gratifying to me to, to continue to see them, you know, grow in every aspect of their life and have to give their mom a, a lot of credit too, because she's uh, very very successful, very smart, and she instills all of those great attributes and characteristics in them as I do. And together, there's nothing more important, I believe, than either of us to, to see them continue to be successful and, and be better than what you know we were as children. And hopefully they'll become you know much better than we are as adults. I need some parenting tips. You know, I'm raising a black son as a white man. Like, what would you say to Dro? How should I approach being his father? Dro, to be honest, watching you up close and now watching you from afar, I mean, you're doing an amazing job. Um, you've taken all the steps to put JJ in position to be successful in all aspects of his life. I would just tell you to just, you know, continue to do what you're doing. And as he continues to grow, when he is able to be at an age where he can understand life a little bit more, always be transparent and honest to help him understand the challenges that he will face. I never allow my kids to lose sight of how hard it is, you know, for African-Americans have it in this world. I don't care how smart you think you are or how talented of an athlete you think you can become. You always have to go the extra mile to stay disciplined and be the head of your class, be the very best you can be in all aspects of your life just to have an opportunity to be successful. But you are, you're doing an unbelievable job. And again, JJ Woods is going to be the next. So I'm excited to continue to see his maturation and, and what you and, and Liz have both continued to do to put him in position to be successful. Thank you so much for that advice, Murph. You know, as we close this podcast here, I don't think I've ever asked you this. How much do you truly love the city of Detroit? I mean, it means everything, Dro. I'm truly embedded into the fabric of this city. The city raised me. I identify as a true Detroiter, you know, blue collar, tough, rough and rugged when needed, but again, also intelligent and methodical enough to teach, learn and execute while navigating in any and all situations. You know, I, I laugh because I get a lot of questions about, well, if you're really from Detroit, you know, name some of the iconic places but you know and i laugh at people like i like we really have this this joke because everybody names the motown museum or heart plaza or the fox theater or the music hall or shane park or floods that's the best like that's the go-to spot draw you you know that like everybody knows floods uh motown or crunk but it's funny because if you truly from detroit nobody from my era and maybe draw i should quiz you on that give me some of the things that you may know about detroit from being around Detroit, like what are some of the things that you know about old school? Anything? The Hitman. Yeah, Tommy Hearns. Okay, Tommy Hearns is that's Whitaker a good and one. Trammell. Yes, Whitaker and Trammell. Those are two good ones. Lance Parrish. Larry Herndon was on that team. Uh, the Judge, Antoine Jobert. Yeah, the Judge. The Judge. So, do you remember the scene? No. You don't remember the scene? Okay. So when I quiz people, if they are really from Detroit. It's a few things you have to know, right? You have to know or experience the scene. 
It was a dance show with Nat Morris. The dancery was one of the places we used to go to the dance. Everybody talks about the Black Orchid, right? That was right by UAD. <laughs> but nobody talks about the Brass Monkey, all right? The Bobolo Boat. Bobolo Boat, you know that one, all right? You familiar with Lou's Deli? Yes. Eminem Shrimp, Molly Molly Shrimp, Dottinetta Shrimp. You know, uh, I'm a shrimp guy. So for I, sure, Mr. Seafood. Yeah, I love those places. The Electrifying Mojo. Used to come on the radio. Soul Night was a spot we used to go to. If you grew up in Detroit, either you wore Max Julian, you wore Nanny Goat, or you wore Jingle Boots. Those are some of the iconic clothing and coats and boots in the winter that people will wear. Northland Mall was huge. You know, Man O' Man, Boy O' Boy, Max Greens, Kingsway, where people used to shop. Remember when we had Grace Hospital and Mount Carmel Hospital, Michigan Bell, where you paid your phone bill, Herman Gardens, Brewster Projects. Like, it's so many things that I can remember in so many places that I've visited, you know, growing up in this city that meant so much. Even going to Farmer Jack. It's no more Farmer Jack, troll. People <laughs> forgot what Farmer Jack is. And, you know, we talked about the loose delis and, the, you know, different iconic spots. But I love being part of the, the fabric of Detroit and wouldn't want to be from any other place and really fortunate to be back here and, and a part of this, this great city and this great restoration with Troy Weaver and the crew. So, Murph, I always end the podcast. What are some simple tips for young coaches? Simple tips, honesty, transparency, communication. Your student athletes or athletes all want to know that you have their back. Uh, The best way to build that relationship to have their back is being honest, transparent, and making sure you have consistent communication. And more importantly, making sure that everybody that you're coaching understands that it's the pitcher is always bigger than themselves. It's a team game, and if everybody is working in, in unison together, Great chemistry and synergy and helping everybody understand that, you know, we are one is is probably the best advice or the best tips I can give young coaches. So Murph, I'm just beyond appreciative Mm. of you taking out time tonight. We're sitting in your wonderful home in Detroit, and I'm just so proud of you. Just so proud of what you've done with your professional start of your career. I just wanted coaches to know you're a world-class coach. Like I've seen it firsthand for 10 years. I can't even articulate how incredible You were practice, pre-practice, post-practice, staff meetings, in film sessions, and then during the game. And, um, you know, you're just a world-class dad. You inspire me. If my son becomes pro golfer, it's because of you. You gave me a summer during COVID and said, Joe, spend every second with him. And it pretty much changed my whole approach to life. And just like you, my son's everything. You know, there's times I wish I was a better assistant. Sometimes I don't sleep at night because I just wish I got you the NCAA tournament or helped you get there. I'm so thankful for your time. I'm so appreciative that you would do this for me and so appreciative that you would help young coaches. Yeah, but Joe, I appreciate you saying, you know, and sharing all those kind thoughts and words, but you're a first class person yourself, high level husband, high level dad and a high level coach. And you did more than enough for me. I'm extremely thankful. It was never a lack of our commitment, our discipline, our dedication and what we were doing. Uh, we did everything that we could in our power to get to the NCAA tournament. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the ball just doesn't fall your way. And for us to get the three postseasons, me leave Eastern Michigan as the second all-time winning this coaching program history, and that's including the COVID year and all the obstacles that we had to face. The job we did was <laughs> nothing short than phenomenal. Like in a lot of it was, you know, the job that you did 
day in and day out and being consistent in everything you did. So never doubt the job you did. We had great players. We had a great system. Never really had great support, but at the same time, we were really blessed with the opportunity to have a 10-year run, uh, which I'll never forget. And a lot of people don't get to become head coaches, and a lot of people don't get to to hire really good people and good people that were your friends become your family. And, you know, me and you are like brothers and, and family forever. So I'm, you know, forever proud of of what you, you've continued to do, you know, since we all uh, departed from Eastern Michigan. And it's, you know, continued uh, life ahead and you'll continue to do great things. And uh, just remember, it's nothing more important than, you know, obviously Liz and, and JJ and your family as you continue on this journey. But yeah, I thank you, uh, you know, for coming out and being here and, and really coming and sitting in my home and doing this with me. And it's always good for me to, to reminisce and think about the, the positive moments that, you know, we've had together during our times. Uh, and I'm not just talking about Eastern Michigan, but you go back to, you know, the program juice at, at UAD back in the nineties, <laughs> like we go back and, you know, so people didn't really know our history and our, and our friendship. And, and, you know, a lot of people was like, you hired Dro. I've been and drove for 20 years now and I know how hard he was as a worker as a player and how hard he worked to make sure you know coach Watson was successful at UAD and all the time you had put in so I'm forever thankful that you believed in me and supported me and had my back over a 10-year span but more importantly for you you did a great job as a coach um, but you're doing a unbelievable job as a husband and a, and a father. So if you continue to do that and, and make sure you, you keep God first and, you know, you'll continue to be blessed uh, for all the things that you do for yourself, but more importantly, for everybody else. Thanks, Murph.